welcome to Markets and Investments in Times of COVID-19. I'm Max Richardson, Senior Investment Director at Investec in London, and today I'm talking to James Anderson. James is the Joint Fund Manager of Scottish Mortgage Investment Trust and is a partner at Bailey Gifford. I've been enormously privileged to meet and interview him a number of times in recent years, and I'm particularly looking forward to this conversation. It's been just over 12 months since James and I last spoke. At that time, the world was in the early stages of a global pandemic for which we now have effective vaccines, but which are being distributed at differing speeds around the world. Our discussion last year covered technology cycles, the energy transition, and how the pandemic has accelerated our transition towards a digital future. Since then, the word sustainability has been on everybody's lips, not least in the asset management industry as we rise to the challenge of understanding the risks associated with issues such as climate change and biodiversity loss, as well as societal inequality. This has forced us to look at the historic contribution of capitalism and capital allocation in arriving at this point and how it can be used to rise to these challenges. James and I will talk about the future of capitalism, long-term thinking, the purpose of business and what sustainability means to him as an investor. We'll also talk about the continued evolution of the internet and what innovations like blockchain might mean for the future of investing. James, welcome. Thanks, Max. It's a pleasure to be talking to you again. Uh, I'm going to dive right in and ask uh, a rather philosophical, but I think important question. You, you recently said that the number of companies that will have a profound effect on society is very small, smaller than the tiny number of companies that actually drive stock market returns. Is a company's sole purpose to make a profit? If not, what will be the role of investors in the future? That's certainly not an easy first ball, Max. Um, I, so I, I'd want to divide a bit between companies and investors in, in, in talking about that. Now, I, I, I don't believe that a company's sole purpose is to make money, and I think it's one of the profound uh, misapprehensions of the last 40 years. You know, I often think of the, the entire time of my career as being, you know, one might feel the initial Reaganite, Thatcher, right, revolutions were useful, but they went far too far and were far too exclusively about the pursuit of money at, at, at all levels. But from an investing point of view, and I don't know whether you, you see it in this way, uh, I would, as so frequently, go back to conversations with John Kay. And, you know, I think his viewpoint that we pursue everything as investors by obliquity is really important here. You know, I don't actually think it would be narrowly better in financial outcomes if I solely concentrated on trying to make money. I think making money is very often the outcome um, of trying to think about broader um, good in, 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 in those terms. And, you know, I, I think the way I would put it is that you can, as we will probably touch on, um, reconcile these, but only if you're thinking in broad enough and especially long enough terms. You know, I think if you extend your horizons, the doing good part of it becomes incredibly important. And I think one easy metric for thinking about it is, and this puzzles me just how much it helps, if one portrays what we're trying to do as good capital allocation, I think it automatically presses you in this broader and longer direction. I would have to agree. I mean, I, I think that one of, the, uh, one of the issues perhaps over the last 40 years is that we, the economy has been focusing on the golden eggs and has forgotten to take, take care of the goose. Um, and, and there are certainly in academic circles, and I think in industry as well, questions now arising about what, what are the ultimate ends of, of business, you know, is, is it to make profit or is it is there a sort of a, 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 a broader welfare or well-being or indeed just the concept of maintaining the system in which we operate, you know, the health of that system, which I think is important. Let's talk about sustainable investing and sustainable development. The Brundtland Report famously defines sustainable development as that which meets the needs of the present without compromising the ability of future generations to meet their own needs. So, so what does sustainable investment really mean to you? Well, firstly, can I slightly reformulate from um, the prime minister or ex-prime minister of, of Norway? You know, I, 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 Max, would put it in the context of 
a, a phrase from the long now, which is, you know, as an organization we've, we've talked about um, in, in, in the past. And their definition of it is that you should try and be a good ancestor. And I think that holds up extremely well and, again, emphasizes the time frame part of it. But I do worry that sustainability at the stage we're at is not really enough. You know, I think that we have a mixture of the fantastically encouraging and the equally fantastically discouraging in the world, but they are sufficiently exponential on both sides of the equation that we're in a race. And I think the illusion that we can make companies just be good enough, just be sustainable, is not going to get us here. For sure, that takes us back to the, the small number of companies. But I think we have to back companies that are not just having a real impact, but have the ability to drive transformatory improvement, to drive a deep transition in, in what is going on. So, you know, I, I would argue that we need to go a lot further. And I'm pretty discouraged by quite a lot of what I see in the conventional labels of sustainability and ESG from that point of view. The, there are many who are now talking about this concept of going beyond sustainability towards you know, a more regenerative way of business. And the Capital Institute wrote a paper which was interesting in that regard and, and made the point that we've had two or 300 years in many ways of an economy that has been degenerative to natural, social, human capital, even if we have had incredible advances in terms of our economic development. Um, and that sustainability arrests that decline, but regeneration in whatever form that takes, you know, be that in an agricultural sense, be that in a societal sense, you know, maintaining and regenerating the trust in society is an important step that we need to go beyond sustainability. So I would, I would certainly agree with that. Yeah, I agree with Max that. And if I may interject, um, you know, I, I think it fits with what we're seeing in the positive sense as well. You know, I, I, I think, and I know we've touched on this before, but it's only a feeling that's got more strongly um, backed in the last 12, 15 months, that actually, if you look at not just the underlying technologies that we already can see developing and which are already important in portfolios, such as the renewable energy one, you know, I, I do think, for instance, that what synthetic biology might do in terms of completely transforming, not just the economics, but the sustainability and transformatory nature, above all, of economies manufacturing is, is truly remarkable. So, you know, I feel deep hope on that score, but I think we need to invade, embrace the extreme in that as in so much else. Just to stay on this concept of capitalism, what the future of capitalism might look like, the academic world seems to be increasingly alarmed at the inability of capitalism and free markets, indeed, to sustain economic growth in a finite world, a world with clear planetary boundaries. How does the future of capitalism look to you? And should we be optimistic or worried as investors? Oh, gosh, Max, that throws up so many different uh, issues that, excuse me if my answer is longer than would be, it would be ideal. I, I think the first element in this, for me, is that... We can probably, I hope, and with all the time pressures involved in this, cope with the immediate challenges of uh, the, the limited material set and limited to one earth that we, we, we have to cope with. And I think we can do that because, as I've tried to say before, and I only feel more strongly about now, I think there is plenty of evidence that we have the technologies to do this and the speed of what we're doing. But we do have to consider that that gets more and more difficult over the course of time. Now, I'm not sure how far I see that is inherent to all forms of capitalism um, rather than just Robert Barron style capitalism. But I do worry an awful lot that the core insight here again, comes from somebody we've once before talked about, Jeffrey West at the Santa Fe Institute, that we're going to have to make these leaps more quickly and more quickly. 
and that becomes really problematic. So whilst I think that it's conceivable that we can deal with the challenges of the next 30 years, you know, all those unknown challenges out there beyond it may require even quicker processes of adaption. And I think, you know, this is where it gets even more complicated. I think what we would both acknowledge is that that throws up the type of societal challenges you already hinted at, because it becomes very difficult for humans to cope with that pace of change. Now, you can even think of it, you can obviously think of it as whole groups of society, the problems it throws up in many developing countries because of the lack of resources uh, to, to deal with that but also in terms of you know, how do whole bodies of society cope with having to change what they're doing three or four times in life. Now, in our careers, and more particularly in mine, you know, we cope with the disappearance of one job for lifetime. But what happens if you're expected to make four or five different changes and completely re-educate yourself in that? And are we not already seeing many of the difficulties that throws up for society? I'd also add at this point, and I was tempted to say this in some of your previous questions, I think we're also dealing with, in many ways, a crisis of academia and economics in particular uh, that make this much more complicated. You know, I think the whole models of how our economies work, how innovation happens, how the responses happen, how exponential growth and decay happens, are not nearly incorporated enough. And I can make this either a, a narrow investing question or a much broader one. So you'll probably remember being the very well-read person you are, uh, the Warren Buffett story about how most good investors came from one school of education and that that's how you could prove it wasn't luck. I, I would argue quite strongly now that most successful investors over the last 15 years have been dedicated to a reassessment of economics, which I could loosely call the Santa Fe complexity approach to economics, which makes you think about all this in very different ways. And to throw something else in as a, as a final attempt to, to elucidate it, um, one of the things I've been doing in the last couple of weeks is that I'm uh, lucky enough to be the chair of Panier House, Adam Smith's home in Edinburgh's um, prize for economic and innovation writing. And I think it's really striking both how little academia and investors with bad on both sides as well as good be, but how little we're really addressing these deep questions. And I think, you know, Adam Smith would frankly have been absolutely ashamed of the superficiality and formality of so much of both our investing and our academic thinking. It's always struck me, and I think that the investment industry is, uh, is guilty of, of perpetuating that Smith, that in a complex system like an economy, or you know our planetary system that, that we can take a small number of inputs and pretend that we know what the outputs are going to be you know be they you know, interest rates inflation that kind of thing um, when it's you know it's a complex system is much much harder and one has to have this kind of systems mindset which I think is what you're alluding to um, and that that does appear to be um, you know pervading more and more into the the economic mindset but but is a shift that I think we need to make quite rapidly in, in the coming I, yeah I think it's a it's a huge and necessary shift at this point you know I might almost argue that the bulk of the economics profession is even worse than the bulk of investors in that they define away what you're saying there by saying that everything must be in equilibrium <laughs> we profoundly know that that is not so your interactions your alliances with academia um, over the years, and we talked about Hendrik Bessenbinder and his work, um, I think, at Arizona State University. Mm -hmm. Perhaps you could tell us, and, and of course, Carlotta Perez at University of Sussex, Sussex as well, um, who we talked about last year. Perhaps you could just talk to us about whether you think that is a source of edge for you as investors um, and, and perhaps some recent developments and conversations you've been having in that regard. I think this is incredibly important, and you know, I'm very glad that uh, that seems to be plausible from your and your colleagues' point of view, Max. Um, and, you know, the puzzle to me is almost why other people don't do this. I mean, we both know that this is one of the issues that you need to think about investment. Well, what is it stops other people thinking that way? And I think this is probably just an aspect mainly of, of short-termism, but I think it's 
also an aspect of how people can't envisage change and that that too becomes problematic as change gets more probable. But almost the part of it that's most intrigued me over the last couple of years has been the extent to which this is high quality information. Um, I can't quite say probabilities because we probably don't know the, the distribution involved, but high likelihood of being right. You know, I, I, most of the material that one is almost forced to read as an investor um, from quarterly reports to broker commentary, although I try very hard not to read that, is at best a 52-48 bet. But if you read the deeper analysis that academics can come up with over long periods of time, I think you're already twisting that into something that is 75 to 25, and after a few years, 90 to 10 uh, probabilities. And I think that that really, really matters to me. At that point, it does become probabilities because you're learning about the, the, the range of outcomes. And you know, I think that has absolutely been the case, for instance, with the renewable technologies broadly de de defined, that it's worked out in that term. I think the answer is, therefore, that it's, it's, it, it's it, what you don't know is the when. Uh, you can have an awful lot of confidence in the if, and, you know, that we try and turn that to our advantage. But I, I would say there is a huge amount more to be done on this, partly because, as you've already built up, we are plainly not at all far along the continuum of having really acknowledged the importance of long-term thinking. Uh, one of the things that we discussed to carry on with the long now mentioned earlier uh, is whether you can set that up as a sort of type of organisation throughout the world, so have many long hours in, involved in, in, in all this. Um, and I, I think equally you need heterodox thinking, the freedom to think. Um, one of the people who, on the verge of entrepreneurialism and academia, that we become increasingly um, admiring of would be Nubar Afian, the, 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 the chairman of, of flagship in, uh, investors um, and also Moderna, uh, to take a very relevant case, case in point of the current time. And as he says, what you've got to build in to the whole set of hypotheses around this is that you won't get progress and you won't get interesting thought from people who are trying to be reasonable. And I think it's this curse of reasonableness which affects so much of the investment industry and so much of the entrepreneurs, but you've got to be extreme. And I think that's what the best academics are because they have the freedom to rethink completely and what they're turning on. So I think what this is saying is that one should go a lot deeper and invest a lot more in this. You know, I, I think you need to do that without turning it into something terribly formalized. And I think that will prove to be a challenge uh, for my next generation of colleagues. Um, and it's something that, that Lawrence Burns, who's going to be one of my successors, um, takes extremely seriously. But yeah, I, I think we, I said a couple of years ago, we got sort of 30 to 35% of the way along this. I think at best, we may be 50% of the way along this. Good. Well, it's certainly good to hear that that, that, that theme will continue even um, even after you've left Scottish Mortgage Investment Trust. Um, and and I think that in a in a, in a rapidly changing world, as, as as previously described, that you know radical thinking probably is what gets you ahead and, and and provides the edge as long as it's well informed. And if you can use that academic research and insight to tip the you know the odds in your favour, then that that will help. Yeah, and Max, if I could just introduce one other one. You're saying so many interesting things. React. Um, so I was having a chat with an investor, both Tom Slater and I much admire in America, Dennis Lynch. Um, and we were just talking about, you know, what over a course careers, you know, I, I'm older than he is, but we basically both were musing on the notion that really you just need to have that type of insight you're talking about, about a very small number of things. And the way the conversation went was if we had both at the start of our careers fully believed that Moore's Law was going to get us to the end of our careers, then really would you have need to know an awful lot else? And, you know, my slight conclusion is no, you wouldn't. It is a gift that kept on giving and, of course, ties into those discussions about academia and deep relationships with companies uh, that you could talk about on that score. So, you know... I, I, 
I often think, yes, it's the way you think, but that trying to exploit it with a very few developments you have that sort of confidence on and a very even smaller number of companies who have the confidence to interpret those in the right way is probably the best path. Given its importance, Moore's Law's importance, it's probably right that, um, that, that we define it. So perhaps you could just define Moore's Law and perhaps then talk about ASML, which obviously Moore's Law is very relevant to and is a holding within the, the portfolio. Yeah, well, absolutely. So I, I think the easiest way that you can, as you, you'll know, um, quarrel with this slightly, but by far the most useful definition is that effectively computing power doubles every two years. Um, and, you know, that then puts into the exponentials. You only need to run that out for 10 years to buy. You've got some pretty remarkable numbers. This is great of rights effect. So you, you then brought it into um, ASML, which I, I'm delighted you have because, you know, I, 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 as you know, am somewhat obsessed by it. But I think it's so fascinating, both that it could give you confidence about this and the, what I'll come to say about, which makes me feel that this is actually probably the most important company in the world and has been for some time now, is a hardware company based in continental Europe. Um, you know, there is something that doesn't quite add up here, or if you add it on the Philips effect at large, that Philips effectively threw off both ASML and TSMC, which are probably the two most important companies in the world. So there's nothing truly remarkable there. But you know, to put Moore's Law on in context, they will say, don't start it in the 1960s when Gordon Moore wrote his article. That you can actually trace it back to 1900. Um, and that's how long it's been going on. But with classic exponentiality, it doesn't really matter for the first 50 or 60 years of, of, of all that. So it comes to have the impact. Now, I think that we've taken confidence for them that that Moore's law can continue for another 10 or 15 years. You know, I, I think I may have said to you before, they, they described the next 10 years as easy, which made me laugh in the context of, of what I could understand about it. But, you know, as long as we can, we can trust them and saying it is easy. Uh, I, I think that has driven almost everything else. And uh, you mentioned in your introduction, the internet. I mean, in effect, the internet is really yet another output of Moore's Law, isn't it? I think what's really amazing at the moment is that Moore's Law is interacting with sectors and other technologies, which themselves influenced by Moore's Law, which throw this into a much more powerful format for what we've still got to come. It's not just compounding of it, but, you know, I would absolutely argue that it's beginning to hit healthcare in a very major way, which turns it from the reverse of Moore's Law, EROM's Law, where you put twice as much didn't get half as much out into a superpowered Moore's law because you've not just got Moore's law, you've got Carlson's curve of genomics and all the machine learning and AI associated with it. So, you know, you're suddenly at this revolutionary point where data is giving us a better understanding of human biology than we could possibly build by ourselves. And I think that is truly remarkable. Um, and I think it's only by really embracing the vision of these type of companies, you get to understand that. You know, I, I often think what we're doing is just trying to find the right connections to learn from. You know, I'm not sure that we actually need to be clever, very clever, and we certainly shouldn't think of ourselves as being very clever. It's getting to discern the right people to learn from. You recently mentioned that good governance is not about metrics. Our industry at the moment has a you know, clear... Uh, emphasis and you know some might say obsession on so-called environmental social and governance uh, or ESG metrics so good gov governance is not about metrics but about creating enduring companies and helping societal advance is there a risk that measurement of ESG factors distorts fundamental intent when it comes to governance as companies tend to manage to what is measured Oh, oh, totally, Max. And, you know, I am extremely worried about this. You know, I think it may be the equivalent sin that indexation was for so long and the notion of risk as being away from, from, from the index. And I think it is absolutely damaging rather than just not getting the full benefits or making margin, marginal improvements. And I, I think, and I don't mean to be too obvious, but I think it's a sufficiently serious and important enough um, company that one ought to mention it, Tesla. Um, you know, I, I'm not sure what your own people will say, but from moving from the initial reactions of our internal people to many of our clients' um, ESG functions, that just about everything in the way that the company is run is thought to be wrong. 
and that therefore we should both vote against it and we should be very questioning shareholders. But I then would link that into a conversation I had with one of our friends at Tencent, who unprompted said to me, the near bankruptcy of Tesla and the massive shorting of it and disparagement of it was surely a grotesque failure of capitalism. And I think that is right. Now, what I'm not sure about, and I'm very actively discussing this with our people in our positive change team, Kate Fox and others at the moment, is whether that means that all metrics are wrong or whether it's the metrics that the industry has accepted. And what I was propounding was actually from the Tesla example, uh, which was that actually instead of you just getting a sum back that tells you Tesla is slightly less polluting than other large car manufacturers, what you should be thinking about is the metrics of how much Tesla has shifted an entire and central industry causing carbon pollution in the world in a different direction. Um, And, you know, it's not just what it's doing. It's the fact that without that power of that example, I very much doubt whether the traditional auto companies would be able to get there. Now, I think you can produce numbers that will be infinitely more interesting, infinitely more important for the world by thinking about that. So it's not just a suspicion of numbers with which I share with you, but it's that I think we select a very bad set of data metrics for people to focus on. I think I'm right in saying that you've been talking to various academics about the inequality of distribution. And I, and I, asked, I asked this question cognizant of the fact that, you know, there is uh, significant societal uh, unrest in many developing markets at the moment. Perhaps you can tell us about the work that you've been doing in this regard and how you think the investment industry could help to tackle broad societal inequality. Well, the, the, the first thing is that I really believe that this is linked to everything we started out discussing and this intense concentration on aggregate Uh, economic measures and particularly GDP, which was never meant to capture everything that that is important to the world. Um, You know, I'll take this one back to um, some of the work we're doing with with Panier House and Harriet Water at at the moment on this score. And of course, Adam Smith did say that any system where the majority of people were not benefiting um, was bound to fail over the course of time and should not get any admiration. And it's, you know, only this huge perversion of the wealth of nations that's so popular in America uh, that, that has got us away from that. Whilst I'm not sure how much that we can directly do as this fund managers, we should have an existence outside our mere careers from, from this, this point of view. Um, I, I, I think it should absolutely inform our assessment of both the likely success of societies, which matters for capital allocation, and the misery that is being caused. And I think we have deliberately factored this out. The most powerful example of this um, and again, you will doubtless know, you know, know his work, uh, will be, is on a call with Angus Dayton, uh, the, the Nobel Prize winning economist of, with who and his wife have done fantastic work on what they would call deaths of despair. And that is absolutely the tremendously depressing fact that much of our societies are going backwards from this point of view. And, you know, I find it informs a whole lot of our conversations as well, because it also affects how you think about different societies. You know, I I hope I don't need to say that I find much of what goes on inside um, China abhorrent, but abhorrent. But, you know, I do think that we have to factor in the extent to which they have brought hundreds and hundreds of millions of people out of poverty and made their lives less likely to end in very early deaths of despair. And I think that matters. And I don't believe you can have a functioning society unless you go in these directions. And I find it very comic at the moment, you know, if you do talks in America or questionnaires, whatever, um, there seems to me to be an ignorance of the dangers that society is facing from the extremities. Now, I fear you are right, and many developing countries will be facing the sharp end of this or will not be able to progress in the way we would hope because the world is not so. Um, But this is absolutely the case for America itself as well. I would argue it's the case for Britain as well. Um, And I think we see some very practical investments at the level of, for instance, 
would it not be the single best investment in the world at the moment to allow, particularly the two mRNA companies, uh, to increase their supply of vaccines uh, throughout the world? But that, as you know, is not where the focus is. Now, yeah, I'm not sure there is much as an investor I can directly do about that, apart from you know, encouraging Moderna and, uh, and BioNTech to go down down that route. Um, but, you know, I, I think it's a profound failure of politics and that we all need to, you know, not portion up our lives into uh, what is investment and, uh, and what is the reality of the, and the sad reality of the world we face. You mentioned Moderna there, and I, I, I'd love you to tell the story really about the two significant holdings in, in, in your portfolio, Moderna and Illumina, which who were combined so instrumental in not just sequencing the genome of the COVID virus, but obviously then putting uh, a vaccine together. Perhaps you could tell us that story. I think, again, it comes from a lot of trying to think about where exponential change is. So, uh, you know, at a Scottish Mortgage Board meeting recently, uh, we were talking about these two very companies and the underlying direction. As I said, you know, this was meant to be true in 2000 when we first were sequencing the human genome. You know, what takes us from now? But most of these technologies take at least this period of time uh, to turn into actually in, in investment utility. But it was that evidence that uh, the curve of a fit greater efficiency, great lower costs in uh, genomics was beginning to have a really matter to us and that it was running at a further pace um, than... It could be the, 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 the Moore's law variant of, of, of this. So, you know, there's been a long-standing influence in, in Illumina. Um, but, you know, it's plainly been the case for all the fact that it has intrinsically been a great investment, that the developments have been comparatively slow. And I think a lot of this is building up to the position where they could, as I was hinting earlier, really influence our understanding of biology and hence attack that approximately 20% of American GDP that is to do with this and, and, and not functioning. And I think that is where we've got to now. And of course, it will make a huge difference whether or not they are allowed to buy out another one of our unquoted holdings, Grail, in the, in the course of this year. Because, you know, that is proving the practicalities on it. But what really intrigues me, Max, if I stay on the Illumina one for a moment before trying to put it together uh, with, with Moderna, it's been just over the last six or nine months, and certainly since we last did one of the, these talks, um, we are finding that practicalities of what I was saying earlier about our understanding of biology advancing ahead of what we can intellectually grasp, what the data is increasingly tell us. So from Grail to Tempest to recursion, which is you know trying to apply uh, the whole of AI to trying to discover uh, new medicines, it's really happening now. And I think that is incredibly exciting. And I'm incredibly jealous of uh, 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 Tom and Lawrence from that point of view. But where it met with Moderna was that, of course, Moderna never even had the virus in their labs. It was just sequenced by Illumina in the very early days in Wuhan. And effectively, within days, they had come up with what they needed to do because you know, this whole, and again, it's a 20-year overnight miracle. Uh, the whole process of mRNA was, was, was getting there. But, you know, to us, it's even more exciting than that implies. You know, trying to mitigate at least the effects of the pandemic and if only one could spread that around the world, as we were saying, it, it is one aspect. But I really think we've reached the point in combining the Illumina and Moderna approaches where, to quote the French uh, boss of Moderna, uh, we're making healthcare replicable, repeatable, and abundant at low prices. And you know, I think the extent of the revolution involved in all this is being underestimated. You know, I'm sure there will be individual disease frustrations, you know, as, 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 but as one as of the most influential early writers of this said, you know, her, her daughter has won Olympic gold medals in rowing. She said, you know, my daughter is always facing backwards, so you don't know when you're getting to life, but you do know you'll get. 
And, you know, I think that is the story of mRNA and this extraordinary culture within inside Moderna and, and arguably BioNTech as well uh, that can see providing a revolution in healthcare is where we're going to. So, I, you know, I'm genuinely full of hope about this for all the frustrations of healthcare over basically all of my career. Uh, it was interesting at the recent uh, AGM um, interview that you did with Tom and Lawrence. Uh, I think one of the questions posed was, what, what do you think the next trillion dollar industry is going to be? And the answer was I, that nobody knows what the next trillion dollar industry will be, but that there will be trillion dollar opportunities in the combination of computing power um, and uh, biology or healthcare, for example. Uh, and, and I think that just you know, illustrates very well just, just how big that opportunity is. I think that's right, Max. If I may, I will interrupt there again. Um, so partly it's the mental attitude of the company that Moderna has. But I think what really intrigues me at the moment is that I think that in a sense, the business models and the which of the great companies may be easier to discern and earlier to discern than I would previously have thought, because it seems to be apparent that the scale of the data really, really matters here in throwing out the results. And hence, if you can be in the lead when this industry is going mainstream, as I think it is at the moment, it, it may be that you can aspire to own the equivalents of the Amazons and Tencents out there in this industry too. It may not be a hopeless task. So whilst climate change has now been declared an emergency by much of society, and it clearly represents an existential threat, not just to our way of life, but to life itself, I wonder what the societal threats of the future might, might look like. One particular area, as I've just mentioned, that gives me concern is that of our personal data how it's been collected by the technology community and used not just to understand how society behaves, but perhaps to shape that very behaviour at a societal level. You recently disinvested from Facebook, and I wonder if this concern perhaps formed part of your thinking in that decision. It did, Max. Uh, um, I, I, I feel pretty somewhere between conflicted and embarrassed about how I didn't grasp this for, for quite a long time. And I think I didn't grasp it because I genuinely believe that Mark Zuckerberg thought that this was ultimately going to be a force for good. And it was, he would put it in the context, did put it in the context of talking about to us, that it's been a very brief interlude when data was private. Uh, that, you know, if you go back to village societies, everybody knew everything about everything. Now, that doesn't mean it was this good, but it probably is bright as an assumption. And I think it's also, again, it throws out the different societies one, doesn't it? Because, you know, I think, you know, the Chinese authorities think it's right that somebody should have access to all these data and change behaviours, but they think it's right that it should be them, not the companies involved. And I think, you know, we, 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 we can see what's, go what's going on on, on on that front. I think if I had to choose, partly because I just think that we're likely to be living with what you're talking about, and I'm not welcoming it, I probably worry still more at the moment, and I don't think this is a competition. I think we should just sort of watch and react as it becomes clearer. But I probably worry most about what you were raising earlier of the inequality, because I think the likely path, if you combine extreme technological progress uh, with extreme divisions in terms of the natural world deteriorating and in terms of the developing worlds is that that inequality gets greater and greater. And that's true within societies as well. So those sort of dystopian visions that say Ian Morris or Jeffrey West would have about it being a very small percentage of people who've got this extraordinary set of outcomes in their favour because they can exploit these changes versus the great bulk of the population is a real worry. And, you know, from the point of view of the establishments of America or China, um, I'm not sure how prepared they are to fight about it because, you know, I, I think that sort of old Bismarckian insight that 
having large numbers of workers and inverted commas, ordinary people mattered because they were both basically man your factories and man your armies um, is no longer really necessary because, you know, <laughs> other forces will do both of those. So I probably worry about the terminal level of inequality even more. And, you know, I think we're, we're far from the chasm at the moment, but I think that chasm does yawn ahead of us. I mean, perhaps we can learn from history because there are sort of echoes throughout history of this same kind of impact that the internet is having today. So the internet has democratised information. It's made search for anything you want to know free. And I suppose one of the, 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 the times in history when that has happened before has been you know, the, the printing press um, in the late 15th century. And... And that had an enormous impact when, you know, people could read books and could actually learn about things that the overarching power structure in society then, which arguably was the church, um, you know, it lost that power. And it, it led to a change in the way that, you know, society as we know it existed from city states, perhaps to nation states. And Ben Thompson, who we talked about last year, and I know that you, you read, uh, has, has talked about this. So, um, it'll be interesting to see just how the power structures in society, um, you know, press, the press, for example, a significant, um, um, the fourth estate, supposedly, you know, is being uh, impacted by, and as Zuckerberg describes it, social media as the fifth estate, um, yeah. and, and what the future look like, looks like in that regard. You know, I, I just really endorse what you're saying there. Um, a few years ago, uh, when I was spending a lot of time in Berlin, we deliberately went to Lutherstadt Wittenberg um, to read about some of this material. And it is quite extraordinary. And a couple of very good books have been written about this recently, just how useful and to a certain extent terrifying a guide this actually is, because, you know, we've still got the equivalent of 30 years war to get through uh, in terms of our ability to cope with this. But the explosion was actually very, very parallel. If you look at the numbers of pamphlets, you look at the actual, as you imply, the start of modern day newspapers and, 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 and the like. I, I think it's a parallel which is endlessly throwing up useful material, but it's not entirely encouraging one yet. We've got a few generations before we get to the Enlightenment if it's, if it's one year for one year version. What do you think the next phase of the internet's evolution will, will involve? I'm particularly curious about how you think that blockchain technology will impact the financial services industry and the allocation of capital potentially to a more sustainable um, or perhaps a more un unstable uh, future in general. I'll try and take the uh, currencies and blockchain issues first, if I may, and fairly head on because you know, I feel very strongly that, as you suggest, this will be absolutely critical to the next 20 years of financial markets and finding great companies and things. But as a very excellent gentleman called Ross Stevens of Stowbridge Capital and, and, and Indig uh, put it, you absolutely need to find your own journey through this. And you know, I think that it is going to take at least, at very least, another five years before we really get much feeling of how this is going to affect our societies. And I therefore feel that what's important has been important is encouraging my next generation and the next generation after them of colleagues to go through this journey themselves. Uh, and to say to them, look, we're less interested in the overall impacts and finding the companies that can find the way to navigate through this. You know, this is, the, again, the, the Amazon analogy. And I think some of them, particularly have a young gentleman called Alan Farrington, who's preoccupied by all this, are, are really coming on with learning that idea of investing through it. That, you know, it shouldn't be just about saying, you know, we need to own X Bitcoins or whatever. It should be finding the companies that you think can help and expand on all this and see the opportunities there. And he's got one called blockchain.com, for instance, which I think is really interesting. Um, but I think the most important thing I can do is say, 
hey, this is fascinating. Please spend lots of time and mental energy thinking about it. It's not trying to come up with answers to impose on people uh, for the next 20 years. So, you know, I, I'm agreeing with you, but saying it shouldn't really be me who takes the lead on that. And you know, I'd, I'd encourage you in future to talk to Tom and Lawrence and Alan about all, all that, and indeed Linda in, in China. Um, where I would like to go, because I think it's already sort of impacting our portfolios and hence, you know, it's started, is, you know, combining quite a lot of the different elements that we've been talking about, but most importantly, the, the, the internet combined with, 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 with energy. Um, you know, I think that this whole notion of just about all these critical technologies, meaning that you're going to live in a re-engineered city, uh, what for ease of term, a 15-minute city is going on around you and how it is changing and how everything will be much more distributed, uh, much more um, individualistic, if you like, but much more about your own area surrounding you is incredibly important. And, you know, I think this explosion in the last year of extraordinarily rapid spread of um, immediate delivery within 15 minutes, half an hour, uh, and the companies springing up around that is a symptom of it. I think the way many authorities uh, are thinking about it matters an awful lot. And, you know, you come back again uh, to the Ian Morris hypothesis that energy systems and communication systems, if you combine the two of them, control the whole nature of your society and the morality of your society. And that much of what we think of Western libertarian, liberal libertarian ideas come about because of the type of energy that we've had and the type of communication we've had, you know, what you can possibly do with all those. And the degree of it which changes under that environment um, seems to me quite plausibly something one could work on. And it's really frustrating at the moment. Because I think by far the best way to interpret this is to go and live in lots of different cities where they're getting a head start on this at the moment. And, you know, plainly, that's that's not possible to do in, in current circumstances. But I, you know, I, I think that is going to, it's not one of those ones where you can list, there will be X, Y, Z consequences. But I think it will change the whole way we think about the world and the whole way our economics world uh, and our connections between people world works. So, you know, it's that metric of the 15-minute city that I think is going to be really interesting. Can, can you give some, some examples of, of those types of cities that are really evolving towards that that concept? Yeah, um, absolutely. And, I, I, you know, one of the reasons why I said it would be very interesting to go them, I think it's coming from quite a lot of different directions simultaneously. And, you know, I think that's often very revealing, isn't it? It's like with ideas. If people are getting the same idea from a different direction, if the same thing is happening in cities um, from different, from very different ideological or practical uh, directions, I think it matters. So, you know, typically the most top-down version of this would absolutely be Paris. Um, and, you know, just as in the 1870s, reinvented the way the modern city works. So I think they're doing this now. So effectively, it will be a non-car city. Uh, effectively, you know, the absolute project in this direction is called the 15-minute city. As you look at the evolving pictures of what the Champs-Élysées is meant to look like, I, I think you see this happening. And I think you see it is already building up methods of everything from delivery to healthcare that are changing profoundly. Now, I think in a more... Um, I, I, I wanted to say dis, uh, discouraging, but I'm not sure it is. I think you equally see this in, you know, what has happened increasingly over the 30, last 30 years in, say, Los Angeles or, say, in South Korea, that you're getting this happening because it follows the economic logic. And it's more than that from the, rather than the point of view of the politicians driving it. I think in a more communitarian spirit, you see it happening in Stockholm, you see it happening in Berlin. So, you know, I think there are a lot of, of different cities to examine that. And for sure, you know, there, there ought to be more um, on the Chinese school, but that feels particularly hard to get to at the moment. But, you know, I would argue that in a sense, they put that in motion in a very different way 
by having the communications tools, such as we've talked about before, Tencent and Alibaba and Meituan being far more radical in the way you run your life uh, than the Western equivalents, but also that it's knitting cities together in a way that's not happening in the West, isn't it? Because, you know, this vast network of high-speed rail is plainly giving it a very different tenor that you have in, say, America. It's, it's good, I think, that people, perhaps partly because of COVID, are, find, are refinding spaces outside of cities they're reconnecting with nature because i think if one spends their entire time and i i live in the city and 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 tend not to leave it enough we need to understand what nature is to to reconnect with it and to understand how important it is but actually uh, and some people have left the cities but clearly there is a shift going on in the way that cities um are evolving it's happening very interact with their hinterlands yeah so it may be more back to, to city states and you know i, I one of the depressing aspects of Scotland over the last couple of hundred years is that process of industrialization ripped people away from their rural origins in a way that is unparalleled elsewhere in the world. And, you know, taking to it's extreme in Glasgow, you know, why is there less good life expectancy there by 10 years in Edinburgh because of what you're saying? And I think you do need this, this interaction. You know, you should go and look at pictures of uh, the interactions between um, cities and the countryside in Siena to get a better feeling of, you know, what we should be aiming at and we may be coming back to in terms of the scales you can go with. I wanted to ask you one final question, um, aware that, uh, that that you are approaching the end of your time at, at Bailey Gifford uh, as well. And I I was hoping you might be able to answer a fairly straightforward question, which is that what is the one piece of advice that you would give to an investor, either early in their career or they may not be doing it as a career, earlier in their experience? What is the one thing after your all of your time um, as an investor at Bailey Gifford that you would that you would impart to that person? Don't believe anything you're told, <laughs> including from me. I think it's incredibly important, just as it is in companies, that you try and work from first principles. And if you find it interesting enough, you will find a different set of first principles make sense to you than make sense to the conventions of investment management. So, you know, I really would encourage people to, to find their, their path less trod. That's that's very helpful. And and I just want to thank you again for all the interviews we've done over the years and and certainly look forward to perhaps being able to do them again in the future. James, thanks again for your time today. Thanks, Max. A pleasure. The views expressed are those of the contributors at the time of publication and do not necessarily represent the views of the firm and should not be taken as advice or recommendation. Investec Wealth and Investment, a division of Investec Securities Proprietary Limited, is an authorised financial services provider and member of the JSC.